Good evening. I'm Janet Jacobson. I'm the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And I would like to welcome you to this evening's lecture, which is the annual Helen Pond McIntyre Lecture in Women's Studies. And we are very happy to have with us uh, the distinguished scholar Dorothy Roberts this evening. Dorothy Roberts is the Penn Integrates Knowledge, George A. Weiss University Professor, with a joint appointment, with joint appointments in the Department of Sociology, um, the Law School, and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also holds the inaugural Raymond Pace and Sadie Tanner Mosell Alexander Chair. Um, as many of you know, Dorothy Roberts is an acclaimed scholar of race, gender, and the law, and her pathbreaking work in law and public policy focuses on urgent contemporary issues in health, social justice, and bioethics, especially as they impact the lives of women, children, and African Americans. She has written several major books, and I think each one is um, in itself a landmark, as well as just dozens and dozens of law review articles and other articles and essays. Um, the books, I think, are going to be familiar to many of you. They certainly are to us here at Barnard College. In particular, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty was published in 1997. Um, this is a book that looks at the intersection between race and gender around the question of reproductive justice. And as someone trained in ethics, the thing that I find most important about this particular book is that it holds together the value of liberty with the value of equality. As many of you know, in American politics, it is all too easy to split liberty from equality, to think that in order to be free, we must be unequal, or in order to be equal, we must somehow become unfree. And this book proves that wrong in a nutshell. <laughs> Um, and around issues that are very important um, to women's lives. Her second book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, was published in 2002. And as you can see, she, one of the things that's particularly striking about Professor Robert's work is the way that she's able to connect issues that have been central to social movements to each other. So the connections between reproductive justice and child welfare are, like liberty and equality, often separated from each other. And yet, if we follow the course of Professor Robert's work, what we find is that these things must be held together. If we are going to address one, if we are going to address the politics of reproduction, we must also be able to address the other, the politics of child welfare. She's here this evening to talk about this book, which I carry around because I think it's so important, um, which is Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. The thesis of this book is that race was invented, and she shows the history um, at the start of the book of the invention of race in the 16th century, um, and that yet this invention could be undercut or essentially done away with by science, and in particular by genetic science, that they, there are all kinds of studies which show us that the genetic differences that are supposed to adhere to race, in fact, do not do so, and that the differences across um, uh, genes um, are striking in their variability in ways that cannot be tracked through the type of social groupings that we generally associate with race. And yet, what we find is instead a series of scientific interventions that purport to show us the ways in which race is not only genetic, but the genetics of race determines virtually everything about our lives and in particular our health. Fortunately, we have Dorothy Roberts here this evening to show us why not only that is a mistake, but that if we take seriously the invention of race and an intervention into the science of race, we will perhaps move toward a land of freedom, justice, and equality for all. Dorothy Roberts. Oh, thank you so much for that pithy introduction that's so well captured, maybe even better than I will tonight. So much of what I want to say, that, that was a great ending to the introduction. Um, and uh, thanks so much to the Barnard Center for Research on Women for inviting me to give this very distinguished lecture. I'm very, very honored by it. So I, I am going to talk about an aspect of my new book, Fatal Invention. Uh, given that this is Barnard College and the Center for Research on Women, I wanted to highlight uh, the intersection of race and gender in uh, the 
resurgence of genetic definitions of race uh, that I see happening now in, in the US. So um, I'll start with an example of uh, how consumers are being brought into the new genomic age uh, at a very personal level. And this is a picture of a spit party that was thrown by the direct-to-consumer uh, genetic testing company 23andMe during Fashion Week in New York in 2008. And one of the interesting things about it is that this was reported in the New York Times not in the science section or the business section, but in the style section. <laughs> and uh, the point of it was to promote uh, this genetic testing company and uh, you know to add a little glamour to it and to convince the public, I guess, that it's really glamorous to uh, test your genes. And one component of it was that couples could uh, get their DNA tested, uh, and this couple joked that maybe the results might determine whether or not they would get married or not, because if it showed that either one of them was going to pass down you know, defective genes to their children, then maybe they wouldn't be a suitable partner. Uh, so I think this is just one brief example of what uh, some people are calling biological citizenship, which means a lot of different things. But the way in which I'm using it relies heavily on Nicholas Rose's definition, uh, where he points out that our very life itself has entered the domain of decision and choice because we now, with genetic testing and other uh, scientific developments and technologies, can take control of our very lives at the molecular level. And people can associate with each other and with doctors and with science uh, based on this new ability to manage not only our health but other aspects of our lives uh, through genetic knowledge and genetic testing. Uh, I disagree with Nicholas Rose about whether we should, this is a completely wonderful thing that we should celebrate, but I do think that he's onto something, that there is a way in which the technologies that are marketed to all of us are, uh, are marketed as ways of taking control of our lives, that making us more autonomous and also giving us a way to associate with other people based on knowledge at the molecular level. Now, one uh, aspect of this ability to associate with people based on genes that uh, some are promoting is that we can now overcome race because we will align with others based on genotype, genetic similarity and difference as opposed to the invented category of race. Uh, so the founder of 23andMe, for example, says, you know, if you want to associate with people based on a genetic mutation, you've got a predisposition uh, to a particular genetic disease, you can find out other people who have that based on genetic testing. And on the 23andMe website, you can even join communities, virtual communities, based on genetic predisposition. So uh, this promises, perhaps, to undo race. Uh, in fact, just before uh, we met <laughs> uh, here, there, we had a meeting with some journalists, and I, I won't identify, it was confidential, I won't identify anyone's name, but one of them said to me, well, do we really have to worry about the resurgence of concepts of biological race? Because pretty soon, everyone will be able to scan their entire uh, genetic sequence, and we won't need race anymore. So this is a pretty popular idea that genetic science is going to overcome race. 
Uh, President Clinton and, in fact, uh, Francis Collins and Craig Venter, the um, leaders of the Human Genome Project, Collins, the public uh, project, and Venter, the private project, uh, all made a point of saying that mapping the human genome showed that race doesn't exist at the molecular level. And Clinton famously declared when the draft of the human gene map was unveiled that in 2000, that in genetic terms, all human beings, regardless of race, are more than 99.9% .9 the same. And he meant this to say, we are so genetically alike as human beings, uh, we can't uh, be broken down according to race genetically. Uh, that simply confirmed what many evolutionary biologists, geneticists, anthropologists, sociologists, historians had been saying for decades that race is an invented political system, uh, a social grouping that was created to support European enslavement of other peoples and uh, colonization of other people. Uh, it is not a natural biological division. Uh, the way that we I break down human beings according to race, the way that we identify who belongs to one race or another, that is all according to made-up rules. Uh, legal rules, cultural rules, social rules, political rules, but it's not written in our genes. And so uh, all of these statements about new genetic technology uh, showing that race is not a natural division merely are confirmations of what we knew even before the mapping of the human genome, that race is invented. It's not natural. So after uh, all the scientists at the unveiling of the human gene map and President Clinton you know, declared that there was absolute confirmation that race wasn't a genetic category, many people thought, finally, uh, we've done away with this idea that human, the human species is naturally divided into these categories of black, white, Asian, Native American, um, what am I leaving out? Australian Aborigine, maybe. Uh, there's something, something I'm leaving out. Some people say Hispanic. <laughs> uh, that, that that's not natural. Uh, and that there would, geneticists then would turn their attention to a new way of understanding human genetic variation that didn't rely on these typologies that came out of the 17th century. Uh, but, uh, instead, what happened was right on the heels of the unmapping of the Human Genome Project, scientists started doing just the opposite, looking for genetic differences between human races. Uh, as Nicholas Way declared in the New York Times in only 2001, you know, the, the, it, the human genome had just been mapped. Uh, he could have declared that the next phase was a new science of human genomics freed from the chains of the archaic typologies of race. Instead, he says, that the next phase of the human genome project, scientists were forced, you know, they, were, they had to confront this issue the genetic differences between human races, uh, assuming that there are human races, and he uses this language all the time, the principal human races he likes to use in his articles. 
um, and that there were genetic differences between them and that scientists could find those genetic differences and that this was a plausible next phase of the human genome project. Not only plausible, they, ha they had to face this. They, you know, you, if you were a genetic scientist, you had to look into this. So what uh, I and others looking into the genomic and genetic science and technologies coming out of it have discovered is that actually Nicholas Way kind of predicted for many scientists what their next project would be and that there has been a big expansion of race-based science and technology since 2000. Uh, race used as a category in biomedical and population genomics research, the development of race-specific medicines, race used in reproduction-assisting technologies, which I'm going to talk about some more, uh, race used in ancestry testing, including companies that claim to be able to tell you what race you are or what combination of races you are, and race coming up in uh, law enforcement use of DNA and DNA forensics, both to determine the race of a perpetrator who left a crime scene sample, but also race being a prominent part of big DNA databases that increasingly include the DNA of people who are only arrested for crimes because of the huge racial bias in arrests and convictions in this country. So these DNA databases are made up of disproportionate numbers of black and Latino genetic profiles, making them permanent suspects. Again, even people who haven't even been convicted of committing a crime, just arrested uh, by the police. So uh, I was very perplexed, I must say, when I first started reading articles like Nicholas Wade's, uh, going to lectures where prominent scientists were talking about finding racial differences in the genes, um, searching for the African gene for asthma or uh, hypertension, for example. Uh, and also the way that race was so prominent in reproductive health technologies and, and policies. And so I wanted to ask why is race and reproduction so central to technologies that were supposed to free us from the artificial barriers of race? Uh, if it was declared that race wouldn't matter to us anymore with genetic technologies, that these technologies were supposed to liberate us, give us greater control over our lives, form a new basis of citizenship, then why is it that in every single aspect of the technologies that were supposed to facilitate this new biological citizenship, race played such a central factor and Reproduction also was important because, I think partly because people really think of race as being uh, reproduced <laughs> through procreation. And so uh, it is a, uh, people associate race and reproduction very, very closely. So, uh, I, my journey led me to write this book, Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. And in that book, I argue that we're witnessing a new biopolitics in this country that relies on scientists redefining race as a biological category written in our genes biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies then converting this new racial science into race-specific products 
And by that, I don't mean that they're actually necessarily taking scientific discoveries and using them to create race-specific products, as I'll get to in a minute. Uh, you could create a race-specific product without any scientific basis for uh, showing that it needs to be race-specific. Um, part of this new biopolitics also involves biocitizens, or citizens now who are uh, expected to take advantage of tech, genetic technologies to manage their own lives. Uh, there is another side of that, which is not just that it gives you the freedom to use them, but that you're expected to take full responsibility of your own and your future children's welfare by consuming gene-based goods and services. And I'll talk more about that in a minute, too. Uh, and then all of this happening in the context of officially colorblind policies uh, that are not supposed to pay attention to race. Some people believe they shouldn't pay attention to race because there's no more racism in our society to have to worry about. And so, you know, a majority of justices on the US Supreme Court look at race that way, that, the, that race conscious policies directed at overcoming or eliminating social inequality based on race are unconstitutional because they shouldn't take race into account. So we've got this, some scientists saying we need to be race conscious at the molecular level where we have many uh, policymakers saying we shouldn't pay attention to race anymore at the social level. On top of ne neoliberal policies that are uh, pushing services out of the hands of government uh, into the private realm of the market and the family with a philosophy that the government shouldn't be involved in your life. You know, this should sound familiar now from the uh, presidential debates. Uh, and uh, you know, the government's role is to help corporations keep their wealth uh, while you, citizens and others are, are supposed to uh, fend for themselves on the market and take care of themselves. And this, the, the idea of biocitizenship that relies on uh, genetic technologies to manage your own health fits perfectly into this neoliberal philosophy. Um, I, I, and I must add, though, that the neoliberal philosophy is not just about the government uh, leaving the public realm. It also is accompanied by a huge intervention of government into communities of color, especially poor communities of color, in the form of mass incarceration, welfare policies that are basically behavior modification policies to try to get poor women on welfare to get married and take low-wage work, uh, deportation of unauthorized immigrants in the country. So very brutal uh, intervention of, by government uh, at the same time as more and more uh, government is saying, uh, we, we have to slash these services and people need to take care of themselves. So um, let me uh, say a little bit about some of the flawed science that goes into uh, this view that race is a genetic category that explains health inequities in this country. Uh, and just by giving an example of a study that wanted to explain why it is that black women are more likely than white women to have premature babies. And uh, the hypothesis was that black race, independent of other factors, increases the risk of extreme preterm birth and its frequency of recurrence. Uh, because of 
time. I don't, you know, I, I could spend a lot of time <laughs> dissecting this, but hopefully you will see some of the flaws even with the hypothesis itself, which I don't even think should have been published. But uh, black race, what is that? What does it mean to be of the black race, independent of other factors? Uh, and how could black race increase premature births? And what it, who in the study belongs to the black race? How are they going to identify who is the black race and who's the white race? You know, all of that not answered in the study. But um, they, they, they control for a few uh, variables like welfare receipt, found that the black women still had higher rates of premature birth and concluded that there was a genetic reason that black women had, uh, were, more, were predisposed to premature birth for genetic reasons. And I just had to add that they then postulated about the reason why, and it's because there's some selective advantage to black people. Unexplained, this is just total concocted theory uh, that for some reason black people would be advantaged by having their babies die in the first year. Doesn't make any sense, but you'd say, well, goodness, how did that get published? But not only did it get published, it gets a headline in the New York Times, which if you didn't read the study, you would think that the study really did show that genetics is the explanation for disparities in preterm births. All right. Uh, that was a kooky theory. You might say, oh, well, that nobody would publish anything like that again, except I just have to show you that uh, in January, the New York Times had a big spread, the front page of the Science Times, genome study points to adaptation in early African Americans, it, meaning those brought here in chains, you know, a, a few hundred years ago that somehow uh, African Americans adapted to the harsh environment in America by becoming predisposed to disease. D certain disease-causing variant genes became more prominent in African Americans after their ancestors reached American shores. Note this common hypothesis, perhaps because they conferred greater offsetting benefits. Again, no, look at the study, absolutely no support for this theory. And if it not only got, was prominently displayed with a headline, but it got this etching of uh, the uh, slaves working with you know, the, the disease-causing variants um, somehow <laughs> increasing among them in a, in a couple centuries. No explanation why the white slave owners in the back didn't have a similar reaction to the harsh environment when they came from the northern climates of Europe <laughs> to America. Okay. Um, the, uh, I, I mentioned that uh, there are also race-specific medicines that are part of this expansion of race consciousness uh, at the genetic level. And, um, uh, this is uh, a, an ad for Bidil, the first drug approved by the Food and Drug Administration for marketing to a specific racial group. Uh, I, again, don't have time to go into all the details, but uh, this was a drug that was originally designed for anyone, any heart failure patient who could benefit from the combination of two generic drugs that dilate the blood vessels and make it easier for the heart to pump blood. It works that way in human bodies. Uh, but the cardiologist needed to, uh, needed a second patent to extend the first patent that had nothing to do with race, added that it was a drug for African Americans. The Food and Drug Administration approved it based on a clinical trial that only included African Americans. So um, I, I could go on and on about this drug, but I, I want to get to uh, reproduction-assisting technologies. And this is just to show you that in addition to uh, uh, prescribed medications, there are over-the-counter medications that uh, are race-based. Uh, this a vitamin where if you read the label, the distinction uh, between the vitamins for different races is the amount of vitamin D. Uh, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in the formula. 
So the theory is that race is a proxy for genetic difference. Um, this was the theory that the, the company that manufactured Bidel uh, used, uh, arguing that there were ethnic differences in the underlying pathophysiology of heart failure, and that's why Bidel would work better for black people. Uh, and the chair of the FDA advisory committee just point blank saying we're using self-identified race as a surrogate for genetic difference. Now, uh, that then is treated as, as a step toward personalized medicine. Uh, newspapers treated Bidil as if it somehow had something to do with pharmacogenomics or the development of drugs that are tailored to an individual's genotype. Uh, personalized medicine, same thing. Even the FDA in its press release called Bidel a step toward the promise of personalized medicine. Again, as if knowing someone's race can tell you what their genes are. Uh, this is coming from the federal agency that approves drugs for marketing in the United States. Uh, when, I, as I told you, Bidel had nothing to do with genes, let alone personalized medicine. A, a law professor, Jonathan Kahn, has shown that there has been a huge increase in the use of race and ethnicity in gene-related patent applications, uh, and showing that Bidel may be used as a model, even though this drug flopped, but it could be used as a model for other pharmaceutical companies to gain uh, advantage in patent protection and drug approval. Okay, I'm gonna move a little bit ahead because I took too long on those New York Times articles probably. Um, and um, just to uh, uh, give some resolution to this issue of race as a proxy for genetic difference and um, whether it makes sense to search for genetic explanations for race-based health disparities, that uh, I think we should think about race not as a biological category that naturally produces health disparities because of genetic differences, but understand it as a political category that does have biological consequences, not because people of different races have different uh, gene uh, disease predispositions based on race, but because of the impact of social inequality on people's health. Okay, now let me turn to uh, high-tech reproduction and the way in which the, uh, these ideas about biological citizenship and race have influenced uh, advances in reproduction-assisting technologies. And I want to look at medical markets in gametes, that is, uh, markets in egg, uh, eggs and sperm, genetic testing, especially pre-implantation genetic diagnosis that tests uh, embryos for the presence of certain genetic um, disorders and uh, allows for uh, the uh, selection just of those that don't aren't predicted to have those disorders, and surrogacy, um, and the uh, uh, development of reproductive tourism with middle class uh, couples from the US and Europe going to primarily India, but, some, but other countries as well, to hire surrogates. Now, um, this is the kind of image, actually, which is still very prominent in the marketing of reproductive technologies, but was even more so, you know, when I wrote Killing the Black Body, all the images of high-tech reproduction were like this. Uh, lots of white babies, uh, very idealized images of especially blue-eyed blonde babies, you know, coming out of the clouds. This is iconic. Uh, so, the, you know, what these technologies promised uh, to our society, which is the production of white babies. Uh, in fact, 
Now on this website, these images are scrolling across the screen. So it's like you just see lots and lots of white babies you know, coming past. And it's called the success stories. Uh, and they're, as far as I could tell, they're all white babies. And you know, the more groups of them are even better. And you can just ask yourself, do, would a company in the US market you know, uh, lots and lots of black babies, you know, its services with lots and lots of black babies scrolling across the screen? Very unlikely. Um, and in the media also, you know, if you think about these movies that uh, are about, uh, you know, they're scary, but they are about genetic perfection. And they usually have blonde-haired, blue-eyed actors in the lead. Uh, but one thing that's changing since I, you know, between my writing Killing the Black Body and Fail Invention, it, the, the complexion of these uh, ads have changed a lot and the, um, the websites. So that now on Craigslist, there are explicit references to people of color being solicited, especially for eggs. Um, and so uh, that's, you know, a big change that I think we have to think about uh, what that means for the traditional feminist dystopia about high-tech reproduction with just, you know, white, wealthy white women using it and women of color being exploited by it, which, you know, some of that still remains true, but there more and more women of color are being uh, seen as uh, those who use these technologies as well, they're still less likely to use them, especially if they're poor, but part of the culture and the images of these technologies uh, includes women of color. Uh, just another example of, of a Craigslist advertisement seeking, you know, East Indian, Middle Eastern, Asian, Italian uh, donors. Uh, Race also, so, you know, race is extremely prominent in these ads, whatever their implications. You know, race is absolutely for, at the forefront of seeking an egg and sperm donor. Nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people will pick an egg or sperm donor without knowing the race, and race is the number one thing people look for, and the catalogs are all divided by race. Um, in addition, at least one fertility clinic advertised that it was able to select the skin color of um, embryos uh, so that in pre-implantation pre, uh, genetic screening, they, this doctor promised he could, he could determine the color of the child and you could select embryos based on color. And some of you may be familiar with this case of the family that sued a fertility clinic because the baby came out the wrong color. Uh, they wanted uh, a baby that was lighter, like the one all the way to your right, and instead they got the baby uh, in the middle. Um, now, part of the harm to them was that the fertility clinic apparently used an African ancestry man's sperm instead of the white husband's sperm. And so the baby came out darker, although the mother's from the Dominican Republic. And I mean, the, you know, I can look at my own family. My kids are all different colors, you know, that we all know that you don't know what color your child is gonna come out. So, there's no guarantee in any of this, but yes, there was a harm that they gave, used the wrong sperm, but what was the harm they claimed was specifically the harm that she looked different from the rest of the family because of her skin color. So this is maybe an extreme example, though, of how race continues to be important in this biological citizenship 
that gives us control, but control to do what? And what are the consequences when our attempts to control the traits of our children don't work? Race is also used in uh, the in clinics determination of the likelihood that a baby uh, will have certain uh, chromosomal problems, again, treating it as a biological category. And uh, in all of this, again, this, this promise that these technologies are going to liberate us, give us more choices. Uh, I really want to contest whether that is necessarily the case because if the government is absenting itself, uh, divesting itself of responsibility for ensuring a healthy public and we are expected to use these technologies to ensure our health and the health of our children, uh, this may become an obligation, and it's going to become an obligation for women. Uh, they are the ones, or we are the ones, I'm done having babies, maybe that's what I say, they, <laughs> include myself in the we, but uh, women are the ones who are going to be the managers of genetic risk in their children and be expected to make certain decisions. Already, women report pregnant women report that they are steered toward genetic testing without even knowing why they're getting it. Uh, and if they decide not to use genetic testing or don't have an abortion, if the test proves positive for some chromosomal disorder, they are chastised, uh, many, by their doctors or nurses or others, family members. Um, and then there's this question of whether the government might say, well, you didn't use the genetic test or you didn't make the right decision based on the genetic test, so we have no obligation to provide health and other care for your child who uh, has a disability as a result of a genetic um, problem. I know, I, when I taught this issue in my seminar last year, there were students in my class, now granted this, these were law students who maybe tend to be extra conservative, but they said, well, yeah, why should taxpayers pay for care for a child if the mother could have avoided having that child? So this could be a reason to not provide health care for certain uh, women and more and more genetic testing is being incorporated into public health care uh, services. Uh, it's important to remember that even though Medicaid in most states won't pay for fertility treatment or high-tech reproduction, because many legislators would not support assisting a low-income or poor woman to have a child. They might support genetic testing, which would assist a poor or low-income woman not to have a child who will be considered a burden to society. So it, I think we have to really be vigilant about the direction that biocitizenship goes and whether it's going to be used to, as further reason, not to support the health needs of poor and low-income people in this country. And then, uh, I'm just going to use this as an example. I don't, you know, this could <laughs> warrant many lectures in and of itself, but an example of how a reproductive hierarchy could be maintained or is maintained despite advances in reproductive technology, uh, which is very much like those 1980s reproductive dystopias, is reproduct what's 
been called reproductive tourism or uh, middle class affluent uh, people leaving the US and Europe to go to India to hire surrogates at cut rate fees, high salaries in, in India, but much less than what they would pay in the United States with women highly, highly regulated uh, in clinics where they are uh, gestating babies for, for others. While you know, this money can be used to improve the living standards of their families, but right now their families are living in very different standards than the very antiseptic and uh, regulated clinics that, where they're uh, performing this service for, for others. So uh, all of this uh, is going on, as I mentioned before, in a context of uh, increasing promotion of social blind, social, uh, colorblind social policies. And some conservative commentators I have picked up on this. Uh, this distinction between colorblindness in society and race consciousness at the molecular level. With Sally Saitel, who, who boasted about how she treats her patients by race and gives uh, psychiatric medications, lower doses to black people than other people, um, that uh, she says that social race, you know, she distinguishes between social race and biological race. Same with her colleague, John Entine, who wrote Taboo, Why Black Athletes Dominate at Sports and Why We're Afraid to Talk About It. He similarly kind of dismisses race and society or diversity which isn't important, but what's really important is racial differences at the genetic level, which he says have huge consequences in everything from sports performance to success in the classroom. Again, note, the, 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 you know, the subtext of this is the reason why black children do well at basketball but poorly in the classroom isn't because of social race and diversity, that doesn't matter. It's because of their genes. They're predisposed to being good on the basketball court and bad in the, in the classroom. And there's also a way in which many liberals who would never say, you know, what Sally Seidel and John Entine said, uh, also, though, see racial science as good science, and the only problem is if it gets in the hands of racists. So, you know, we shouldn't worry about using race as a biological category, genetic category, in scientific research and pharmaceuticals. We should only worry about the redneck racist use of uh, biological concepts of race. So, in short, what they're saying is racial differences are real at the molecular level, but merely constructed in society. Genetic race is scientific truth, but social race is just ideology. You know, really turning the idea of the social construction of race on its head. So, um, well, I'll put up for a minute Evelyn Hammond's uh, wonderful insight, and others have, uh, especially those who've studied the eugenics era, have uh, pointed this out as well, that what's so appealing about linking race and medical and scientific progress is that it makes racial inequality seem natural. And that was the point of eugenics, and many people don't like you know, to say that we have eugenics in our society to compare what I've been talking about with eugenics, but that, you know, whatever you want to call it, that philosophy, that way of thinking about the world that says that social problems are caused by biology, and that the answer then is to medicalize the problem, treat the problem, with drugs or with other, you know, they're in the eugenic areas with sterilization. It's, many people are still advocating that today. Uh, that, that underlying philosophy is, I think, what is so dangerous about 
treating health inequities as if they stem from genetic difference. So I want to end, though, with uh, a positive, on a positive note, which is that one um, thing, development that I've been very encouraged by is the way in which this combination of neoliberal um, you know, program slashing uh, and support of corporate interests along with a resurgence of genetic concepts of race have brought different groups of advocates or are starting to bring different groups of advocates that may not have seen their common interests uh, together, now seeing that there is a common threat to their work in this view that the social uh, injustices they've been fighting against are really caused by genetic difference. And so I've had opportunities to work with alliances of people in the reproductive justice movement, gender justice, uh, anti-racism, disability rights, economic justice, environmental justice, and other uh, movements that uh, are coming together to figure out new ways of thinking about human diversity, human commonality, and how to uh, fight these trends of uh, neoliberalism and uh, genetic explanations for social inequality in order to uh, find a, a new path that can truly address the persistent inequalities in our country and around the world and lead, I'll end it on a, I, I, you know, I, I, it may sound over the top, but I think it really is a way to lead to a, a world of greater equality and humanity. So I'll end there and be happy to take questions and comments.